uh, I want to show you, first of all, so, this, so Natalie, my wife, she submitted her PhD kind of at the start of July and uh, she started then getting these ads in her Facebook feed not long after um, saying she should do a, a further qualification in, what was it, data, data science, grad dip of data science or, and I think that was because she had been chatting with a friend of ours who is a police officer and was thinking of doing a pet some further qualifications in, in data science and I think the phone was listening in um, and started serving up these ads. You know, you've had that experience of kind of, well, how is it? Well, well, that's spooky. It's probably not spooky. It's probably just really dark and sinister. Um, <clears throat> and uh, so she, she kind of, she experiences what, has experienced what a lot of us experience, which is that these, that Facebook, Instagram, whatever the kids are using these days, uh, it's kind of designed to, to get hold of our attention. We're living in what people have described as an attention economy, right? People want to get our eyes on their ads so we can click on them and spend money, basically. That's the thing. I even read an article earlier this week uh, basically exploring how the dynamics of this are pretty much just identical with the gambling industry that it works to kind of trigger pleasure centres in your brain so that you keep looking at more of their ads so you spend more of more money on the things they're advertising. Um, it's kind of a bit terrifying. There's, there's all these things that compete for our attention, demanding our attention, uh, promising to give us what we think we're lacking to make us full and complete. You know, the next degree or maybe the, the perfect eco-friendly cleaning product. You know, it's going to get the bin properly clean so the baby doesn't like get germs but also not destroy the environment. Or, or, or that, that soft drink with exactly the right combination of chemicals, you know, no sugar, caffeine, no ca I, don't, I don't know what the right combination is, but exactly double, is it? Yeah, double caffeine, but no sugar. So that, so that that woman will see you and be drawn to you. Right? The exact combination. They're playing on our desire to be, we're not, there's something missing, something lacking. And it promises us to, to, to complete us, to fill our lives. Spiritually, there's an attention economy as well. Now, there are lots of competitors, including some of those ones on the internet, right, for our giving our attention to Jesus. Now, Jesus, the one person who, if you were here last week, you would have heard, uh, designed built and holds together the whole universe, the one in whom all the fullness of God dwells, the one who deserves our full attention. And yet these competitors say, no, no, look at me. I'll, I've got more. I'll give you life. Uh, one big one which tugs at our attention and tugs it away from Jesus is this question. What about me? I mean, if, if I give all my attention to Jesus, will there be anything left for me? Or will it, will it sort of empty my life, making it all about him, so that I kind of miss out, actually, on what I need in the end? Maybe you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, and maybe this is one of your questions. Is this Christianity thing actually good? for me? Would it be good? Or is it just going to empty my life out? 
Or maybe you are a Christian and you struggle with this question. I mean, you, you kind of know it, we sing about it. Jesus fills us, he's good. But in the way we live day to day, maybe you struggle. Maybe you wonder. I mean, I know I do. I'll say a bit more about this a little later, but I, I, I'm just increasingly realising that I've got this sort of logic of kind of scarcity uh, deep in me. Spiritually speaking, even though I know and believe that Jesus is my God and deserves my worship, my attention, I just I struggle to believe that he's good and has my good at heart. I keep feeling like I'll miss out if I give him too much attention because there'll be nothing left for me. Competitors <laughs> for attention. <clears throat> I'll pay you later. That's good. But the good news is, the good news is that if you struggle with this like me, you're you're not the first actually. Uh, the Christians who the letter of Colossians was written to, the letter we've been you've been reading together, they struggle with it as well. And the few verses we're going to look at today give us some really significant resources for lifting our eyes and our hearts to Jesus. So he doesn't only fill our vision as he should, but so that we're more deeply convinced in our hearts that he's going to fill our lives and not empty them. You see, we we don't only need a sense that Jesus deserves our attention because he's supreme in all things and fully God deserves to be in the centre. We also need to see who, who he is, asking us to give him our attention. And we need to see that as his story frames our stories, it's, it's going to be good and life-giving. It's going to fill us and not empty us. And when, when we grasp this, when our hearts are deeply convinced that in Christ we, we meet not only our God but our life, the giver of life who gave his life for us, when we get hold of this, it'll overflow in words and actions that declare his praise, not, not reluctantly, not artificially, but naturally, joyfully. So, so let me show you. Uh, first... We'll look from Colossians 1, 15 to 20. Uh, I know you covered this last week, so we'll be brief. But uh, we'll see who it is at the centre demanding our attention. All right. So Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For in him all things in heaven and on earth were created, things visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He himself is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might have he might come to have first place in everything. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him God was pleased to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, by making peace through the blood of his cross. I've got a picture of this for you, hopefully. This is uh, uh, going to come up any moment. 
Jesus in the middle of things? Nope. Okay. There he is. Okay. Now, this, this is an image you might see in kind of old cathedrals and things. Uh, it's called a, a, it's Jesus the Pantocrator. I don't, I'm probably not even saying that right. But pan, all, everything, tocrator, ruler. He's, the, he's at the centre and ruling everything. He's right in the middle, dominating the picture. And if you kind of zoomed out, you would see kind of representations of the whole creation around the outside. And that's, that's the picture we get here. That's what Paul wants to lift our eyes to see about Jesus. He's in the centre of everything. Um, but it's worth just pausing and slowing down to ask who, who he is, who, who it is who is central, and why he's central to everything. Because we see there that in these verses, he's the eternal son of God. He's the one who stands astride human history as supreme. He towers above everything. He's kind of almost got his feet planted either side of history in eternity past and eternity future. He's the firstborn heir of all creation. The firstborn heir of all creation who came into creation, became a baby, became a firstborn child of young, working-class parents who learnt a language, learnt to walk like any little kid does, who grew up a Middle Eastern Jew living and learning a trade in a backwater province of the Roman Empire. He likely walked with his father down from Nazareth to the ruined city of Sepphoris, just two kilometres down the road, which was the building project of the time, to work every day. This is who it is who's at the centre, who towers over history and demands our attention. And he's the one, uh, Paul tells us as well, who designed and built all things such that everything is subject to him. And he became a thing, a part of his creation. He entered history. He needed to breathe air. He got thirsty. He experienced hunger. He became bone-weary and needed sleep. This guy knows what it's like to be us, to be human, to be a creature, fragile, limited, bound in time and space and vulnerable. The Gospel writers actually go out of their way, if you know the stories from the Gospels, to, they sort of highlight this for us. They point out things like when he was just a little kid, he and his family had to flee political violence. They became refugees, migrants, moving to another country. So vulnerable, so much one of us he was. This one who originated us, who calls us to worship him. And he, the one who holds the whole universe together, who's the, the kind of focal point of all creation, the point of coherence, the framework and sort of scaffold for reality itself, he was torn apart inside. He cried out to his father in the garden, Father, if it's possible, please take away this cup, this suffering I'm about to experience. But if not, then your will not mine be done his clothes were ripped and torn and divvied up gambled over 
as he was subject to indignity upon indignity. This is the one who's at the centre of reality, who says, fix your eyes on me. I could go on, but I don't think I need to, right? You get the picture. Jesus, our God, the one to whom we owe our attention, he's not just our God. He's thoroughly committed to our good, even though it costs him everything. He's so committed to our good that he gave up the safety of heaven to be with us, to be one of us, and to do for us everything we needed to ensure that we can be with him. I have another picture. This is not Jesus. The next one. This is uh, the comedian Hassan Minaj, a Muslim-American comedian. He hosts a show on Netflix, Patriot Act. Um, I'll say more about that. I won't say any more about that. I, I enjoy it. Anyway, he's, he tells a story about the fact that uh, when he first met the woman who would become his wife, uh, she was another um, Indian-American, but Hindu. And he's Muslim. And if you know anything about that, that's like countries have been divided because of it, right? It's a big deal. And uh, so he took his parents, his whole family, to meet her family. But apparently they, they got to the doorstep and his dad wouldn't go in got all the way there, but then was like, no, no. What, what would people think, Hassan? What would people think? There was this deep tension in that family between the parents, the family and its reputation on the one hand, and the good of the child. His flourishing, what, what he wanted, what, he, what was right for him on the other. A and sometimes... Christians can wonder about this too, right? Does God want our good? Or is he more interested in his own reputation and glory? In fact, Christians even get into fights with each other about this, about whether God is mainly on about his own glory or mainly on about our good and the flourishing of his creation. Paul wants us to see here in Colossians that his question is kind of wrong, right? Because the Jesus who is our God, supreme and central and demanding our worship and attention, this same Jesus is the life giver who gave his life for us. He emptied himself so that we could be full. And he doesn't want to empty your life. He wants to fill it, to overflowing. He may remodel your ideas of fullness along the way. You may have the idea that a full life would be a house where I can be comfortable. And Jesus may want you to be a bit uncomfortable in your home because you get to experience the fullness of welcoming others in and being hospitable. But that turns out to be so much better, so much more life-giving than our small ideas of our good. You see, his glory and, and our good are, are two sides of the one coin. He's not torn apart like Hassan's family, either the glory and reputation of the family or our good. It's both. His glory is our good.
And so this is, uh, I guess, the first spiritual resource this passage uh, gives us to help us give our attention to Jesus. It gets who he is into focus for us because he's our God. And even better than that, he's our life. He's the life giver who gave his life that we could share it, share his life. But that might still raise questions for you. You might sit there nodding, yep, yep, know this, sing this, believe it. But if you're anything like me, don't always live that. I mentioned before I have this whole uh, scarcity thing pretty deep in me. Uh, it comes from my upbringing, actually. I was brought up um, by, we were kind of fairly comfortably, middle class, um, always had enough, really. But uh, my parents weren't brought up that way. Both my mum and her family came to Australia from England. They were 10-pound poms, which is you pay 10 pounds and you get a one-way ticket to Australia. And they were told, don't worry about umbrellas and, and raincoats, doesn't rain in Australia not just in Melbourne. They, they actually, they lived on the southern highlands of New South Wales when they first moved here and it rained solidly for two months. Right? So, and then they moved to Sydney and my, my mum got into a, a great school but her dad said, we haven't moved across the other side of the world for you to travel across the other side of Sydney for school. You go to the local school. And when she turned 14, she got pulled out of school and told, you have to go and work and earn money for the family. Um, They actually lived with very real material scarcity. And my mum brought this into how she raised us. Even though we we never were in danger of running out of money, I never felt like I could ask for something that I needed or because I never thought we'd have enough. It's just really, really deep in me. I I operate out of this logic, this law of sort of scarcity that there's, there's not enough resources to go around. Not enough for me. And I bring this into how I relate to God. Even though I sing the songs and believe that he's good and has my good at heart, actually, pretty deeply, I, I don't try. I think if, if someone's going to get make it for me, give me what I need, guess who it is? He's got two thumbs and you're looking at him. That I have to do it. Maybe, maybe just asserting myself or maybe sort of sneakily. I'm a firstborn child, so... I like to look like I'm doing the right thing, but I'm sneaky. <laughs> I get it. Watch, watch me later. Just keep, keep your eye on me. <clears throat> it's deep in me, this, this scarcity thing. And I bring it into how I, I function in my relationship with Jesus. Even though I believe all these things about who he is and how he's good and has my good at heart. And that's where the rest of the passage comes in. Right, have a look. Colossians 1, 21 to 23. This is, this is good stuff, right? Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. And these verses zoom in for us on how Jesus is our life, how we should respond to him, how we can embrace the, the life he pours out on us. And, but did you notice that Paul introduced a new word in verse 21, a word he hadn't used before? 
It's a little word, but an important one. Did you, did you catch it? You. You. You, your, your life, your story is part of this glorious story with Jesus at the centre. You're in the picture. You're not left out by giving him your attention. In fact, your life gets given shape and meaning and significance, gets filled because it's part of his story, the story in which he's the hero, the main character. He's at the centre. It's a bit like this movie. Not him. This one. You know this one? It's a Star Wars movie. It's, it's, but it's not one of the main Star Wars movies. I, I don't know if you realise it's like this main series with like Darth Vader and Luke Skywalker and the kind of heroes, right, and moves along. But this story kind of cuts through it. I, mean, I think it's the best one. But it's not one of the main ones. It's a story about some other random people that kind of, they do something that turns out to be really significant and part of the bigger story. In fact, that's, if this was just a movie and there was no Star Wars series, this would be a, actually a pretty weird movie, not make a lot of sense. Right? But it makes sense because it, it, it touches the circle, it fits within, it, it contributes to this bigger thing. It's part of something bigger. And that's what's true of our stories, you, you and me. You fit in the picture with Jesus. He, he's the hero. It's his story. He fills everything in every way. The fullness of God dwells in him. He deserves our full attention, but it doesn't mean we miss out. In fact, our lives get to have a new shape and a significance because they fit within his story. They get to be a really cool movie like this one. That's just my opinion. And so what does it mean? What does it mean for us? Uh, what does it mean for your story and mine to be given shape by Jesus? Well, well, it's there in these verses. There's three things. There's a before and after and a therefore. We have a before, verse 21. Once, before, you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behaviour. You see, even if your life story is one in which, as far as you can tell, you've always known Jesus. You've always considered yourself a Christian. And that's not impossible, right? I'm praying that for my kids. That they'll grow up always knowing and trusting Jesus. But even if that's your biography, spiritually, every one of us has a before and apart from Christ, a left to ourselves, a warts and all. And it's not pretty, is it? Verse 21. Spiritually speaking, the before we all have is, it's tragic. We're alienated from God. We're cut off. We're out of relationship with God. We're opposed to him even. We're, we're his enemies. We do evil. We are, each and every one of us, in need of reconciliation. Before anything else... The thing that's true of all human beings, including Christians, is that we're sinners in need of a saviour. We're tragically fallen, willing participants and accomplices in doing wrong, but also victims, helpless, trapped, stuck in sin, unable to save ourselves. We need rescuing. I make a point of saying that Christians need rescuing too, right? Because sometimes people can get the impression that Christians want to sort of stand off to the side and say... We're better than others, and those, they're bad. They, yeah, they need saving. 
definitely those, that group. Right? But we don't need a royal commission to tell us that's not true. Right? Christians are not better than anyone else. No more trustworthy with power, no more intrinsically able to resist temptation. In fact, almost the first thing that Christians admit about themselves, apart from the fact that Christ has lovingly made us, is that we're much worse than we like to admit. I'm much worse than I'm ever likely to admit. So whatever I do admit shouldn't really be a surprise. And actually, admitting it shouldn't be that deeply threatening to me. Because you kind of all know, actually, I'm alienated, left to myself. I'm an enemy of God, an evildoer needing reconciliation. And so, actually, what the, the thing I've learnt from my childhood, the, the law and logic of scarcity that's deep in me, it actually gets something right. I don't deserve good from God. Because too often I substitute myself for him. I become the focus of my attention, not him. And so I deserve to miss out. And the fact that my story gets to mean anything at all is far from a given. The fact that I'm not given what I deserve, that instead of, in answer to me substituting myself for God, God substitutes himself for me, this is a miracle of grace. And it is a miracle because uh, those of us who trust in Christ those who turn to him and call on him and call him Lord, even though we have this dark and ugly before in our spiritual biography, we also have an after, a dazzlingly bright after. It's there in verse 22. But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Left to ourselves, we're cut off from God, opposed to God. But in Christ, we're reconciled. We're brought back into a relationship as if what we've done hasn't happened, except that it has, and he wears it instead of making us wear it. In Christ, God pays. Christ misses out. He dies a real physical death, and this death restores us to God. Gloriously so, wondrously. And we're not just brought right from, from in debt spiritually in the red back to a kind of zero balance. No, no, God substitutes himself for us in Christ in a way that's way too powerful for that. Does way more. Instead of just bringing us back to zero, we're, we're in the black. We're holy, Paul says, without blemish, free from accusation. Because of Christ, if you're a Christian, you're doing far better than you deserve. All your guilt, all your shame, all your spiritual ugliness apart from Christ is done away with because he bore it. He nailed it to a cross. He was treated as we deserve. 
He carried all our guilt and shame and unholiness down to the hellish depths where it belongs. And he rose victorious, undefeated, and he shares his life with you and me. And so if, if you trust in Christ, whatever you have is a gift. It's not something you can boast in or deserve. We're treated far better than we could ever possibly deserve. And God regards you with mercy, love and affection. He regards you as, as Jesus alone deserves to be regarded, which is profoundly humbling, right? At the same time, it gives us tremendous confidence. Not, not entitlement. We don't, have to, we don't relate to God as though, you owe me, God. You owe me, universe. We just, we just rest in him. Simply trust because our standing with God doesn't depend on what we've done or, or, or could ever do. Our story doesn't secure us with God. Jesus alone secures us. And so our stories have a before and an after spiritually when they're wrapped up with Jesus, but they also have a therefore. There's, there's a life for you and me to live in response to what Jesus has done. It's there in verse 23. If you continue in your faith, established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. That's the therefore. That's the life God gives us to live in response to Christ, continuing to entrust ourselves to him. That's what faith is. Being firmly established, living a life that's stable and solid, with eyes full of hope. Doesn't that sound like, like a good life? Like a life we want? Like a life that's full rather than empty? You know, to, be, to be stable and secure rather than living a life that's where your significance is kind of fragile, easily snatched away, wrecked if things go wrong in your job or with that relationship. To live a life that's full of hope, where you're confident that the best is yet to come rather than crushed because you think the best has already happened. This is a life based not on trusting ourselves, but on trusting and giving our attention and our hearts to one who is supremely worthy of it, who can be trusted with our good. And if we do that, if we give our hearts and attention to Jesus, then I think... We're going to open our lips and declare his praise. If our stories belong, if we have a place, if giving our attention to Jesus won't empty us out, then it means our hearts will overflow with words and actions that declare his praise. We'll kind of gush even. Got the next image. Hopefully. It's a fire hydrant. Gushing. Now, not everyone gushes, right? I'm an introvert. At parties, I don't kind of gather a big crowd around and gu I, I sort of corner someone, take the emotional blowtorch to them. Really deep, intense conversation. However you're wired, though, 
If your heart is full, it comes out, right? People hear it, right? When, I don't know if you remember, it was a significant moment for me, when Netflix came to Australia. I, like, knew about it months in advance. I was telling people about it. There's going to be a free period to start, I would say. It's going to be great. I got on it. You know, great shows on there, Chef's Table, loved it, filled my life, right? And I, and I told everyone about it. It didn't fill my life that much, but enough, actually, that you couldn't shut me up. Whether you got cornered by me at a party or in any other way, I'd just let it slip. You should get on this. It's going to fill your life. It's really good. It's, I think that you can still get a free, if you haven't started yet. No, sorry, sorry. And that's what we naturally do with stuff that fills our lives, isn't it? We tell people about it. We praise it. We, we say, get on this. It's worthwhile. C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, the world rings with praise. And he goes on, all enjoyment spontaneously overflows into praise unless shyness or the fear of boring others is deliberately brought into check it. And look, I don't fear boring you by talking about Netflix, right? Because it's good. Right? The world rings with praise, he says. Lovers praising their mistresses, readers their favourite poet, walkers praising the countryside, players praising their favourite game, praise of weather, wines, dishes, actors, motors, horses, colleges, countries, historical personages, children, flowers, mountains, rare stamps, rare beetles, even sometimes politicians or scholars. We might just leave that off for Australia. but You get it, right? Things that you love, that bring you life, you talk about, you let others know about. It, it fills your words and actions, and you want others to get on it too. Uh, Lewis concludes that prayer is ju- that praise is just inner health made audible. It's a nice phrasing: inner health made audible. What would it look like? What would it sound like for you to have? your heart full to overflowing with a confidence in the goodness of Jesus. That you know he has your good at heart. That he's the life giver who gave his life for you. That you have a place. You're not left out. That you have a before that's pretty bad. You have an after that's amazing. Treated better than you could deserve. That you have a life to live now, therefore in response to him. If this got into you, what would it sound like? Hearts full to overflowing. I mean, people would hear it, people would see it, right? From you. Inner health made audible. Do you want it? I want it for me, and I want it for you.